There is a big global summit happening this week, and it won't include the U.S. So we're returning to our conversation about U.S. and dollar influence. Here's what matters. Live from New York City, I'm Lauren Goodwin, and this is Market Matters from New York Life Investments. In this podcast, we bring you the best insights from across the New York Life Investments platform because we believe that by sharing perspectives and engaging with you, our listeners, we can all become better investors. Welcome, everybody. It's the week of August 21st, 2023, and this week, Julia and I are turning to something new on the radar. There's a BRICS conference happening. And for those not familiar with the BRICS acronym, it stands for a block of countries, including Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And if you were on our desk last week, you would have heard Julia and I, who both come from emerging markets land previously in our careers, having a lot of conversations about what kind of cocktail you might have at a conference like this with so many countries involved. Uh, the leaders of each of these countries are meeting this week in Johannesburg, with President Putin joining virtually due to arrest warrants to discuss a variety of matters important to the bloc. One of the items up for discussion is the matter of new membership. 40 countries from Saudi Arabia to Argentina to Indonesia have expressed interest in joining the BRICS bloc. Economic cooperation is another key agenda item, including the concept of improving funding and lending within the new development bank or the BRICS development bank, which would be most akin to the World Bank for the participating countries. And while the idea of a common BRICS currency is reportedly not on the agenda, this conference increased news flow in the past couple of weeks about China and what's going on with economic growth and banking volatility there. And even volatility in the U.S. Treasury market have led to an increase in questions that we've received about, yes, once again, dollar influence and potential dollar disruptors in the past few weeks. So to address these concerns, we're reprising our April episode describing what it takes to have a global reserve currency like the U.S. dollar and specifically why we don't see the Chinese renminbi as a disruptor to the dollar status for the next several decades. Enjoy. There's one currency at the center of the de-dollarization narrative, aside from the dollar itself, and that's the Chinese renminbi. Today, Julia Herman is back with me to guide us through what it would take for the renminbi to become a credible competitor to dollar dominance. So first off, Julia, I want to throw you a very basic but very important question, and I think that people get mixed up on this. Why do some people refer to China's currency as the renminbi and others refer to it as the yuan? That's as good a place to start as any. Renminbi and yuan can be used interchangeably. Renminbi is more commonly used in Asia, and yuan is more commonly used in the U.S. and Europe. Working for an emerging markets firm for five years, I used renminbi, but it's a personal preference. All right. I think that's a helpful distinction as we get into a whole episode about the Chinese currency. Let's get into the point of the discussion today. Last week, we discussed our team's framework for what it takes to have a reserve currency. Let's reprise that now. Reserve currencies need to first, hold their value. Second, be convertible. And third, be globally accepted. They also need to be liquid. That's a fourth item. And have an offshore market. That's a fifth that reflects the fair value of that currency. 
And I want to go through each of these individually as a framework for our discussion today regarding the renminbi and the threat that it does or doesn't pose against the dollar. And as we do that, because there's five items and that's a lot, you'll hear a to distinguish when we're moving on to the next item in the list. Perfect. So I'll just come out and say it. The renminbi does not meet any of the standards required to be a reserve currency. Ooh, mic drop already. Julia has thrown the gauntlet. All right. For this to be the case, if China doesn't meet any of the standards required to be a reserve currency, then by definition, it probably doesn't meet the first requirement. The first requirement for having a reserve currency is holding its value independently. Why isn't that the case for the renminbi, Julia? It boils down to a free float. The renminbi is not a freely floating currency in the way other reserve currencies are, from the dollar to the yen. Instead, the renminbi is managed by its central bank against a basket of other currencies. So it's not pegged to anything, but rather its value is managed against an index of currencies that China determines. So this basket has a bunch of global currencies in it with different weightings. And in line with our discussion of news flow that supported this argument that the dollar may be declining in value or waning in its importance, didn't China lower the weight of the dollar in that basket? It did, from 19.88% of the basket to 19.83%. It also lowered the euro's weighting from 18.45% to 18.21%. All right, I think that helps put it in context for us. Yeah, it's it's really not much to write home about. And the key point I'm making here is this. You cannot have a reserve currency when your currency is managed against reserve currencies. It's just not possible. You must have a freely floating currency that maintains its value independently by market-determined forces. Let's talk that through, though. What would happen if China got rid of this basket and floated the renminbi? Well, we can't know for certain, of course, but we do know that currently China maintains very tight capital controls as part of its currency management. This helps keep renminbi literally like physically in the country, and it helps to maintain the value of the renminbi. The general consensus is that if China were to float the renminbi, removing this basket that it's managed against and thereby releasing its capital controls, the renminbi would likely fall in value. Of course, there's debate as to how much. And do you know why it would likely fall in value? Because it would be expected that Chinese investors would sell their renminbi to buy dollars and other currencies. Exactly. China has perennially struggled against specifically its richer citizens using everything from travel to Bitcoin to offshore their money. Bitcoin, by the way, has now been banned in China. Citizens offshoring funds is a standard response in many countries that have capital controls. So this isn't outside of the realm of normalcy. But I do feel like I need to moderate myself here by saying that even though China cannot achieve reserve status without floating its currency, which in my personal view is many decades away, it can make strides towards its other goals, like increasing the renminbi's presence as a transaction currency globally. All right, good. So let's think here then about the other requirements to have a reserve currency. Requirement number two for reserve status is convertibility. Convertibility has to be a part of becoming a global transactional currency. And we discussed this last week, but can you specifically reprise this as pertains to the renminbi? A great way to measure convertibility is through how widely a currency is used in foreign exchange transactions. So the dollar, as we discussed last week, 
is used in 44% of global transactions, and that's on both sides of the transaction, so 44 times two, whereas the renminbi is only used for 2%. All right. It's a pretty big difference. And to your point, it's hard to envision the share rising meaningfully with a currency that's still managed through capital controls, at least as quickly as some investors have been concerned about. All right. Requirement number three is acceptance. And as we discussed last week, this can be measured in how commonly countries issue a currency that is not their own. The dollar dominates 64% of this foreign currency debt issuance market, while the renminbi holds just 1%. Exactly. It's the ultimate measure of trust, right? The idea that you can't attract buyers to your sovereign or even large corporate debt in your own currency. So instead, you issue in a currency that you know there's going to be demand for. And that's even considering taking on the extra risk that movements in the currency could create some extra costs for you as the issuer. So the dollar is, for lack of a better term, the gold standard in that market. All right, then moving right along to the two requirements that we did not discuss in as much detail last week, liquidity and offshore markets. First up, liquidity. In my view, having a liquid currency depends a lot on having a deep and trusted domestic bond market, both government and corporate, that global investors are active participants in, really meaning that the world has to want to hold your currency, your bonds. Foreign participation in the Chinese sovereign debt market is just 8.8% versus 35% for treasuries. And that's in large part because China has been very late to the game in terms of opening up its capital markets and opening up its bond market further could mean that China has less control over its currency flows. So as we discussed, that kind of takes us back to the capital control argument. I'm sure we could do a whole other episode with a history lesson of the timeline of China opening up its capital markets, but that's for another day. And how about our final requirement, the offshore market? Investors might think that with tight capital controls, China doesn't have one. China has quite an active offshore market, actually. So much so that there are actually two different Bloomberg tickers for the onshore and offshore renminbi. So how does that jive then with capital controls? It sort of doesn't. Renminbi traded offshore can have a different value than onshore renminbi because the offshore market is more market determined and transacted volumes are lower there. Again, because the People's Bank of China or the PBOC, the Central Bank of China, would prefer to keep most of its currency onshore. So there's a lot of countries with less open and transactable currency might have an unofficial black market exchange rate. China has a very official offshore market, but one that isn't entirely unified with its onshore market. All right, if we put all of this together, we can see that it's less about achieving reserve status now and more about gaining transaction volume, including in the commodity space. That seems to be the goal for China in its recent activities. And in fairness, if I'm a Brazilian soy farmer and my customer is Chinese, in principle, if not in terms of actually how global payments work, in principle, why should I have to make that trade in dollars? So some diversification here really does make sense And it's happening, and we will continue to see it happening. Let me just land that point again. There is plenty of room for diversification away from the dollar without posing an existential threat to the dollar's reserve currency position. These are changes that happen over decades, and we expect that they will happen over decades, but they don't happen over years. And so, again, the threat of de-dollarization in the global economy is a bit overblown. That brings us to our portfolio pause, a segment of the program where we share an investment idea. And I want to tackle a big question today. What if investors want to invest in or against this theme of de-dollarization? 
Look, we could talk about U.S. versus Chinese equities and sovereign and corporate debt. But what I'm sort of struggling with there is timing. If an investor was totally convinced that the renminbi was surely going to usurp the dollar, I'm not convinced that it's a clear buy China and buy China now argument. We've discussed some of the intricacies about investing in Chinese public markets on some past episodes. So message us if you need more there. Right. And we just discussed that this is a multi-generational theme, not a matter of a couple of years. And we do a lot of thinking on these long-term themes seismic shifts in the market, and also just in general on less foreseeable risks, like in our Black Swans piece from the turn of the year. But here's the thing. Not every theme is investable, or at least not investable immediately. And a lot of these de-dollarization forces we're seeing do seem more topical or idea-based than fundamental right now for the reasons we discussed today. Now, sometimes these very long themes are ones that you can't position around, or at least can't position around them right now. And on that note, our team did write this awesome piece in Anticipatable Risks and Developments, the Black Swans of 2023. And in addition to some cool ideas around the U.S. dollar, China and Taiwan, et cetera, it also talks about the timeline of these risks and how to consider risks that are or are not investable. You can find it on our website or review that earlier episode of the pod. Coming up next, we're very excited to launch a special summer series on how households, that means you and I, can prepare and pursue our holistic financial futures with approaches including life insurance and annuities in addition to the specific process of setting goals in investments. Please tune in. This one will be a lot of fun. But that's it for today. We'll be back next week for more Market Matters. In the meantime, please remember to give us a like, follow, or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a question or topic of interest, reach out to us on LinkedIn. You can also follow our views at newyorklifeinvestments.com and click the Insights tab. Until then, I'm Lauren Goodwin, and we will see you next time. Our podcast is produced by Milo Benamats and our music was composed by the fabulous Zach Young. I will now read our disclosures from compliance. Select data for this episode was sourced from the Bank of International Settlements, G0, and the Federal Reserve Board. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, which may vary. All investments are subject to market risk and will fluctuate in value. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific date, is subject to change, and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information should not be relied upon by the reader as research or investment advice regarding the funds or any issuer or security in particular. The strategies discussed are strictly for illustrative and educational purposes and are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. There's no guarantee that any strategies discussed will be effective. This material contains general information only and does not take into account an individual's financial circumstances. This information should not be relied upon as a primary basis for an investment decision. Rather, an assessment should be made as to whether the information is appropriate in individual circumstances and consideration should be given to talking to a financial advisor before making an investment decision. New York Life Investments is both a service mark and the common trade name of certain investment advisors affiliated with New York Life Insurance Company. Securities are distributed by Nye Life Distributors, LLC, 30 Hudson Street, Jersey City, New Jersey, 07302, a wholly owned subsidiary of New York Life Insurance Company. Nye Life Distributors, LLC is a member of FINRA SIPC.